If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. The Huns, Mongols and Goths are just some of a score of nomadic tribes of the Eurasian steppes who built long-lasting empires, facilitated global trade via the Silk Road and widely disseminated religion, technology, knowledge and goods. Speaking to Emily Briffitt, Kenneth Hall details how these nomads profoundly shaped the course of history around the globe. You've written this book, Empire of the Steppes. Now, can you tell us what was your inspiration for the book? Well, it was an interesting subject to me from a very young age. I think you have the name identification with Mongols and Attila the Hunt. And from a young age, I read about these subjects. It was fascinating to me. And my scholarly career has concentrated on the Roman Empire. And there were two fields of that study that drew me across the steps to the eastern end. One is my work in Roman economic history and especially coinage. One of the big questions is, was there a currency drain from the Roman Empire to the east along the Silk Road? And that has been disputed by historians. So I got very engaged with 
who are the guys at the other end and how did those goods get there and what's being traded? And, and so I did a considerable amount of work of that. And it just gets fascinating. As a generalist, you always know that you're only studying a small portion of the world, the Western end, the Roman Empire, and there are other three great empires in these tribes. And the second interest is my interest in frontiers. I've always been interested in the interaction between a settled urban society, an imperial order, such as the Roman Empire. One of my pet projects is the British Empire in India. And I've actually taught comparative courses on the Raj and, and Rome. And that led me, of course, to comparison of, well, how did the Romans deal with the Huns, their Byzantine successors with different nomadic tribes, and what was going on in China or Central Asia? How did those contemporary civilizations cope with these people who stretch over thousands of miles and link all of the urban civilizations? And then when I was approached by the idea of writing on the Silk Road, first as a recorded course and then as the book, I thought, well, you have to do more than the Silk Road. You have to understand the people who make the Silk Road possible. And that gets you to the nomads, whose role in history often gets, I wouldn't say overlooked, but it, it's put to the sidelines. Yeah, they're out there. They periodically invade China and make a nuisance of themselves or the Roman Empire. And there's all sorts of disputes whether Attila was a threat or a nuisance right now. I think he was a threat, but that's my opinion. But trying to understand who these people are. And one of the challenges is that we depend so much upon their foes and victims for the information because they left the written records. And one of your tasks is to try to understand these people through what records we have from them, as well as archaeology and anthropology, study of language, how did languages evolve. And that fascinated me. And I ended up writing this book spanning 45 centuries. <laughs> it's an incredible amount of time that we're talking about here. And I guess the other contextual point we should probably make clear is when we're talking about the steppes, what region of land should we perhaps carve out in our mind? Well, we can go from west to east since that's our orientation. And you would start in the grasslands of Eastern Europe, such as Transylvania, noted for its vampires, but really, <laughs> really disputed between Romanians and Hungarians these days. And it would stretch across Moldova, Ukraine, Russia, all the way to the eastern slopes of the mountains of Manchuria. And that would include Mongolia. It would include the central steppes, which today would be largely Kazakhstan, which is an enormous country. I think it could fit most of Europe in Kazakhstan. And these are great grasslands. If you cross the river we call the Jaksartes, uh, you enter into what is now Uzbekistan. We often call that Trans-Oxiana. It's the lands between the Oxus and the Jaksartes. And this was something of an extension of the steppes where you would have a mixture of cities and grasslands. That is now largely a Turkish-speaking land. Previously, it was Iranian-speaking, and it's one of the great linguistic and ethnic changes of the Middle Ages. So this is a vast corridor, and I start out uh, the book by speculating, well, what would it be like to travel those steps at some time in antiquity, going from west to east, the different lands? And if the steps are a highway, 
uh, what are the exit ramps? You know, where do you end up? And there are various exit ramps, you know, across the Caucasus Mountains into the Middle East. Crossing the Jaxartes would bring you into the lands of Eastern Islam today and in the Middle Ages. Continuing through the Hindu Kush, you end up in northern India. You cross the so-called Tarim Basin, which is on the Silk Road, and that is a transition zone from Central Asia to China. You arrive at the Jade Gate if you're entering China, but to the north are the Mongolian steppes. And you have a constant movement of people across these regions ever since the horse was domesticated, perhaps, oh, as early as 4000 B.C., and you develop wheeled vehicles that could move these mobile homes across this vast area. And the description of nomads traveling in, say, the 5th century B.C. is not so different from the way they are traveling in the 13th century A.D. They perfect a very successful way of life to exploit the grasslands, to raise different herds, to produce hides, woolens, salted meat, and they could trade these goods with the urban civilizations for products they themselves could not produce. And that could include anything from foodstuffs, grains, dried fruits, alcoholic beverages. Uh, wine is always much appreciated, grape wine. It supplements kumish, which is the fermented mare's milk they drink. And that would also include furnished goods. Nomads such as the Shuang Nu or the Ruan or the later Turkish Khans they would want silk. They would want Chinese brides. They would want rice, rice wine. All of these goods they can't produce, but that would enhance life on the steppes. And if you don't trade, you raid. Those are your options. They can't survive completely on their own. They must trade with the sedentary civilizations. And that is a fact probably from earliest times. Do we get a sense of how these different, the sedentary and the nomadic, interacted with each other? Do we see that in the written evidence or in the archaeological evidence? Yes, you do. There might be limited agriculture in some of the river valleys on the steppes. Uh, you would have agriculturists even in early times. This is particularly documented in Ukraine, where you have the earliest nomadic confederacy we know from written records called the Scythians. There are people who are subject to the Scythian tribes who are agriculturists, and some of that grain is exported to the Greek world, to the Aegean world, and the Eastern Mediterranean depended on imported wheat. And these would be the nomads taxing their agriculturalist subjects in Crimea and certain river valleys. Uh, the same would be true on the central steppes in the Ili Valley, where today you, uh, Kazakhstan, where you would have agriculturalists. In the case of the uh, eastern steppes, the nomads are always trying to control some of the northern provinces of China, where there would be not so much rice, it's millet in North China is the main grain. And there again, they would want to tax these agriculturalists as a way of sustaining their own people. Once you get beyond those agricultural groups, if they're dealing with a major power, a centralized state, then the trade assumes another dimension, and that is prestige goods. It's great if you're Modu Shanu, the, the head of the Shuang Nu, the earliest confederation on the Mongolian steppes, when the Han emperor sends you all sorts of princesses, silks, rice wine. You can hand them out to your vassal kings. You can reward loyalty. 
And you can create a very uh, clear hierarchy of those rulers closest to you, those farther away, depending on what goodies they get, how often and how prestigious. And this sustains your own confederacy. Of course, the Chinese emperor on his side realizes, well, this is a much cheaper way of dealing with these people rather than trying to attack them, since the history of warfare between nomadic peoples and settled peoples, the nomads have an enormous advantage on their own terrain, and they're pretty formidable even in the settled zones. Once they adopt cavalry in the early Iron Age with a composite bow, they are one of the most formidable armies ever to be fielded until the advent of modern firearms. And it's only the advent of handheld firearms that shuts them down. The Russians and the Chinese essentially divide the steps between them. But up until that point, defeating nomadic horse archers is very difficult. So why not court them? Why not make them a son-in-law? Chinese emperors got lots of extra concubines. There's always princesses around. Marry them off. When those marriages take place, it isn't just a single lady arriving. She comes with a whole troop of women attendants and musicians and experts who know how to craft all sorts of goods. They arrive at the court. The nomadic ruler, wow, what a reception you can throw for your vassal kings when you've got you know Chinese acrobats and musicians. And by the way, I'm the son-in-law of the emperor of China, so don't mess with me. And where's the tribute, by the way? I... <laughs> It becomes an extremely good negotiating device. And it's not very different on the other end with Attila the Hun and the Romans. It's essentially a, a similar arrangement. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. 
language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So both negotiation, but also this idea of military advantage as well. The nomadic tribes of the steppes have produced many sort of notable conquerors, some that we're all very familiar with, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan. Well, these are charismatic rulers who can unite tribes into great steppe empires and change history. But even when you don't have those charismatic rulers and the tribes are much more divided and fragmented, they still are very successful in many ways. They have to be practical. They understand the value of trade. And so when merchants cross their zone, they're negotiating for water easement rights. Well, you need protection, don't you? You've got all those camels moving along. Well, we've got the guys who can protect you for this part of the route. You also need food. You need guides. Where are the water holes? We can provide all of that, and of course, we expect gifts and something in return. And what the great charismatic rulers do is they can impose control over vast sections of that route and in effect tax it. But there's always negotiation going on as a merchant traveling through these zones. Uh, In the Middle Ages, in the 10th century particularly, Professor Bullitt has really pointed out that the Turks excelled in the trade because they bred these hybrid camels that were in high demand and were superior to either of the other two species or subdivisions, whatever they are, you know, genetically. They were sure-footed, they could endure the cold weather of Central Asia, and they provided camels in great numbers to the merchants. You know, transportation, constantly replacing animals. They profited immensely on this. Furthermore, the very practical, the trade routes bring missionaries. The spread of Buddhism to East Asia is a result of the Silk Road and the nomads. And they will look at merchants who are extremely successful and, well, they worship the Buddha or they worship Allah. Well, this God is pretty good for his worshipers, isn't he? Well, maybe we should find out about him. And that would lead to conversions. It certainly leads to conversions of the Turkish peoples in the 10th and 11th century, which is a momentous event in Turkish-speaking populations because ever after they are associated very strongly with Islam, or to be more correct, their version of Islam. You're dealing with people who know how to negotiate, and also think about the way they see the world. They don't see a map oriented north. They are in the center of the world looking outward to the west, to Europe, to the south, the Islamic world, to the east, China, to the left is the east, to the right is the west, they probably have a better sense of the geography of Eurasia than anyone else until the advent of modern mapmaking, because they're in constant communication. And the tribes themselves move seasonally, and they're always negotiating with another tribe on rights of pasture or water, and they can move great distances in a short time if they have to, whether they're fleeing an enemy or they're fleeing drought. It's the same thing. So they're easily dismissed as barbarians. These people are quite sophisticated in what they know and what they can do and extremely practical in all aspects of life. They have to be. Can you give us a sense, perhaps, of what life 
everyday life perhaps would be like on the steps at this well I say I could say at this time but we're talking over centuries here well, we have different reports about it. For instance, in the winter time, we've got very good report from Ahmed ibn Fadlan, who is an Arab from Baghdad. He's an envoy to the Khazars and to the Bulgars settled on the Volga River. These are nomadic tribes. The Khazars actually converted to Judaism. That's an interesting story in itself. And the Bulgars had recently converted to Islam. And to get there, he has to cross what we would call Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan today, around the Caspian Sea and into Russia. And he reports what life is like in the winter. There's no privacy. You are huddled together in these mobile homes, the, the yurt in Turkish, um, uh, these felt tents. You can only survive on the hospitality of these Turks as they move from area to area. Your word is your bond. If you borrow animals, you swap out your tired beast for fresh beast, you are expected to return them in good condition. And woe to the man who does not follow his word because you are punished ruthlessly, you endanger the group. It's amazing to Ibn Fadlan how open life is in these crowded quarters for months on end. And he's very offended of the fact that all sorts of private activities are done in front of the group, and he complains about it. And his hosts point out, well, maybe our women, you see more than you would in, say, Baghdad, but our women are modest and true to their husbands, whereas your women wear veils, and we know they're all seducing each other in Baghdad. We have these wild stories about this. So aren't you being a little disingenuous in your moral outrage? But this is a man coming from a very refined urban civilization, and he's really taken aback by the basic subsistence for this group. They all have to pull together. Women are uh, moving the carts in the summer. They're driving them while the men are scouting, herding the animals. Children from a young age have to learn the skills. One feature of the Mongol court when they rule China, you know, Kublai Khan is worried that his warriors will become too Sinified, and he creates these areas within his capital cities where the young can learn the step ways. You know, the boys learn how to string bows and hunt animals and women know how to weave and all of those skills that would be necessary for that way of life. You know, we don't want to get too close. And there's repeated warnings. One Turkish Khan, uh, Bilgay Khan in the 8th century, sets up this monument and one of his comments is, it's okay to trade with the Chinese, but don't build cities and live like the Chinese because then you become vulnerable. They can attack the city. The Huns are the same way. We're told by Roman authors that the Huns get extremely nervous when they go into buildings. You know, they can't see the blue sky. So that's not good. <laughs> you know, that, that's limiting our way of life. So the, the winters would be a very harsh time. You had to calculate very carefully how much food you would lay up. And then the summers can be blazing hot. We have several important reports of papal envoys across the steppes. So William of Rubeck in the 13th century reports as he's traveling, the only way to get shade was to park that ox cart and stay under it for the midday because you just couldn't possibly travel. There's no trees. He sees rivers so much bigger than the Seine. He's from Flanders and he had lived in Paris. He wanted to get back to Paris as soon as he returned and eventually managed to 
convince the Queen of France to recall him. But his report of the arduous travel in the summertime is very telling. This is what all the nomads would face. They would have to time their travel. We know of the Mongolian uh, Postal Service, of another envoy, uh, Giovanni Carpini, who was an envoy of uh, Pope Innocent IV. It takes him 105 days to ride across the steppes to get to... This is better than the Pony Express. I mean, and they wake up in the morning, they have this sort of mutton stew, they get on the horse. Poor Father Giovanni is too old for this. You know, he, if he's overweight, he was more familiar with donkeys than Mongolian horses. And, and they ride deep into the night and then they, you know, eat this salted mutton and uh, get some sleep. And after a while, he just loses all sense of time. You know, it's just constant movement across these vast areas. And when these papal envoys start out on their voyage, their Mongol guides tell them, you got to dress properly, you know, get rid of that garb from Western Europe, you know, no sandals, you better put these fur boots on and felt hats and you got to dress properly. These are Franciscans and Dominicans. So they're, they're wearing the simple clothing of their order. And furthermore, if you lag behind and get lost, don't expect us to find you. You're on your own. We're not going to endanger the group because you got lost, whether it's in high summer or it's in the winter. Either time of the year, people could lag behind because of the weather and their conditions, and only the fittest are going to survive on these steps. And that's why they make such good warriors. They have been hardened to conditions that other people just would find impossible. But that gives you some idea of the conditions that these people endure. And this way of life is perfected in a time we call the Early Bronze Age, you know, from 4000 to 2500 BC. It apparently arose on the steppes of Russia, South Russia. And the initial migrations are west to east. And that really reverses in the Middle Ages when the migrations go from east to west, which many more people are familiar. The arrival of the Turks in the Islamic world, Attila the Hun in the Roman Empire comes from the east. Finally, the Mongols, Tamerlane, they're coming from the east. But initially, it was Indo-European speaking people who were the first nomads, and they brought the way of life from west to east. And it was quickly learned on the central and eastern steppes. One of the things that we've been hinting at as we've been talking is about the domestication of horses and of how influential that was. I know we've spoken a little bit about how significant it was militarily, but how else did this impact not just the nomads, but society more generally? Based on the best evidence, and again, I depend on archaeologists and archaeobiologists, I guess you could call them, who've studied DNA of the species, that... Most of the horses existing in, say, 4000 BC were on what we call the Pontic Caspian steppes, that is the South Russian steppes, stretching from the Dniester River to the Volga River. They were very rare in other parts of the earth. They had completely disappeared in the New World, where the species had emerged much earlier and evolved. And we think they originally domesticated the horse as a source of winter food. The animals could forage under snow. You could sustain them during the winter and you would have available fresh meat. At some point, some guys got on top of these and started riding them. 
That proved very useful for scouting and herding. And wheeled vehicles, which emerged in probably Eastern Central Europe or the Caucasus, were devised for, one argument is they were used in mining operations. And once they learned to harness the horse to the vehicle, they realized, well, it's a transport. Wow, we can move homes across the steps. And finally, you start to devise saddles. And you perfect a saddle in what we call the Iron Age, which is the period after 1000 BC. And you get improved saddles from there until you get metal stirrups, which make a big difference. First, you have these uh, tote leather stirrups, uh, wooden stirrups, finally get metal stirrups. And that allows you to mount the warriors, and the horse becomes primarily an animal of war. But he always remains, you know, as a possible transportation animal. It's associated with light chariots. Our earliest chariot actually comes from a burial in southern Russia. They have bred the horse for stamina. It's domesticated. This is about 2000 BC or somewhat earlier. They have spoke-wheeled carts for war wagons. And this notion of using the horse as the beast to carry chariots into battle spreads across Eurasia very rapidly. Then when they decide that cavalry is actually better than chariots, for one, cavalry can operate over areas where chariots cannot go, that will spread very rapidly uh, across Eurasia. Everyone wants to mount cavalry. It becomes the noble arm. And some areas are better suited for raising their own horses uh, than others. Western Europe can breed very successful workhorses and, uh, and heavy chargers. China, on the other hand, does not produce the fodder that will allow their horses to develop strong bones, that's selenium, and they were always dependent on imported beasts from the steppes. And that was an advantage of the eastern nomads. They could hold the Chinese emperor up for many bolts of silk in return for horses because the Chinese just can't breed the horses in their homeland. So the animal proved very important. The nomadic tribes of the steppe seem to have had this significant role. As a final question to you, in your opinion, how decisive a role would you say that they had in shaping history or shaping the course of the steppe? They, they play so many roles. They allow the exchange of ideas, technology and goods across this vast continent of Eurasia. I always find it ironic that gunpowder arrived in Western Europe complements to the silk trade and the Europeans managed to devise the weapons that put these people eventually out of business. And that has a lot to do with the strange political and military history of Europe. But the spread of religions, for instance, all of the nomadic peoples were extremely pragmatic. They worshipped their ancestral gods, particularly Tengeri, as he would be called in Turkish, the Lord of the Blue Sky, the Turks and Mongols. Some could argue that they almost were inclined to monotheism because on those vast horizons, the, the heaven was just endless and represented the power of the all-powerful God. So they allow for the movement of religious thinkers, missionaries, across the steppes on the Silk Road. They entertain and host them. Many of the tribes eventually convert to one of these religions. They, they looked at the practical side of what these religions offered. More than the deep 
philosophical and moral issues. So these merchants are extremely successful. This god is good to his followers. They have these uh, Sufi mystics who go into trances and are very holy. Well, maybe they're not too different from our shamans. Let's consider this religion. And also, it's a big advantage because when we go into the Muslim lands, we will be fellow Muslims. We'll get better trade concessions. Sounds good. And these are the kinds of concerns that often the nomadic people would raise among themselves when they're contemplating a conversion. Then think of being a nomad and going into a city like Sarmakand or Bukhara in the 9th and 10th century and looking at all those dome mosques. This is impressive. That would be the result of people arriving as mercenaries and merchants into the civilized zones, and they would carry stories about the fabulous achievements of these civilizations, and they would associate it with the fact that the dominant religion was Islam. So they play an extremely important role in the religious history of Eurasia. They allow for the movement of these religions, the contact between missionaries and their possible converts. The Mongol century is the 13th century, and recently Pope Francis was in Mongolia and praised Genghis Khan and his empire, which caused a big stir in the press. You know, oh my God, the Mongols are a bunch of bloodthirsty cutthroats. You know, how could the Pope absolutely praise these people? And by the way, see what they did in Western Europe when they arrived. But what he was trying to stress is, yes, this was a bloody conquest, but once they had achieved the conquest, they imposed a peace that allowed this type of trade and exchange of ideas to go across the uh, Eurasian land. And above all, all of these nomadic peoples, once you accepted the overlord and became a subject or a vassal, they were very tolerant. They did not persecute their subjects because they were Muslims, Christians, whatever, they had to be loyal to the Khan or the Chanu or whatever title Attila used, but they didn't interfere with the religious views of their people. There is a certain toleration built into it, and I think that comes from their practical viewpoint about religion, in which they're practical, well, the divine power revealed himself in this way to these people in the distant past, so it's legitimate. There's no need to mess with it. So long as they accept our law, they're fine. Um, it, it took Europeans a long time to come to that conclusion. That was Kenneth Hall, Emeritus Professor of History at Tulane University and author of Empires of the Steppes, The Nomadic Tribes Who Shaped Civilization, published by Bloomsbury in 2023. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Thank you.